We don't know what form the battle damage will take, uh, but it will likely affect our ships both below the waterline and above the waterline and will require expert skill sets of all our EDOs, whether they you know, spend their days focused on HM&E systems or combat systems or information systems. We just need to be ready to respond with a great sense of urgency when the time comes. Hello and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Lieutenant Commander Matthew Horton. Today, we welcome to the podcast Captain Jay Young. Captain Young is currently serving as the supervisor of salvage, and in that role, he acts as the senior diving officer for the Navy. And he has agreed to come on the podcast for a discussion on the EDO diver community and some lessons learned from recent events. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee and join us in The Wardroom. So Captain Young, welcome to The Wardroom. Hey, thank you, Matthew. Hey, sir. So, you know, I'm, I've been interested in this conversation because I think me, like a lot of EDOs, we're, we're not super up to speed on the diving community and what all you do. So can you tell us a little bit about the EDO divers and what's your mission, you know, your qualification process, career progression, you know, stuff like that? Yes, um, that's a big question. I'll break it down kind of piece by piece. Uh, so so first of all, we're, we're a rather small community within the EDO community. And our mission primarily is to provide technical, operational, and emergency support to U.S. government agencies, including the U.S. Navy, our allied partners, and in some cases, commercial industry in the ocean engineering disciplines focused on marine salvage, pollution abatement, diving, diving certification, and underwater ship husbandry. And just an example of underwater ship husbandry, the work we do amongst our regional maintenance centers and our shipyards, we avoid on average, 90 dry dockings a year um, because we are completing work in the water in a dry dock. From a diver qualification process, it's really a five-step process where ED diver candidates compete for 10 billets to dive school every year. Uh, the first step in the process, um, every diver must complete a medical standards physical. It's, it's very similar to our five-year physical with a few other specific checks that the docs must do to make sure that, that a person's qualified for diving duty. Second, uh, the candidate has to pass a hyperbaric pressure tolerance test. It's a 10-minute test at uh, 60 feet in a pressure chamber. And it really, we conduct this test just to make sure the individual is comfortable under pressure. Third, a candidate must complete a, a diver physical screening test. What's unique about the diver physical screening test, it, it's age and gender agnostic. So there's one standard. It doesn't matter whether you're male, female, 18, or, or 40. It's the same standard for everybody. Physical consists of a timed 500-yard swim, push-ups and sit-ups max in two minutes, pull-ups, and then a timed 1.5-mile run. Typically, the average candidate scores are, are a nine-minute swim, 76 push-ups, 76 sit-ups, 15 pull-ups, and, and about a 10-minute mile-and-a-half run. That's pretty much the average standard. Fourth in the screening process is we run through a, an interview and a package review by myself and, and the folks in my office at, at SoupSouth. And then finally, uh, dive school. The joint diving officer course is a five-month course of instruction at the Navy Diving and Salvage Training Center in Panama City, Florida. And then following the core course, we have a three-week course that focuses on mixed gas diving. One question I get a lot is, is when's the best time to go to dive school? There are plenty of options here. Primarily, most folks go after their SWO or submarine qualification tour before they go to Naval Postgraduate School or after Naval Postgraduate School before they go on to their ED qualification tours. We also have folks that go after their ED qualification tours. That's when I went. And then we have a, a billet or two every year 
reserved for our EDO options coming out of the commissioning sources and they go to dive school before they go to their, their first ship or submarine. And then once you're qualified, you've been through dive school, the requirement is uh, you have to dive eight times a year to maintain that diver proficiency. From a career progression standpoint, first and foremost, we want to reiterate that the ED diving is not a primary mentor group within the EDO community. Um, we are an augmentary mentor group. So all divers are required to have and pursue a primary mentor group path. Being augmentary to us, it's a huge benefit to our diving and salvage mission because we are able to bring in divers with experience in all facets of our community and, and not just focused on one element. Also, all divers are, are required to complete one experience building dive tour, uh, typically as an O3 or an O4. The purpose of that tour is, is one to give them the experience of what diving and salvage is in case they're ever called upon to execute a mission outside that tour, and then to build that bench depth to develop individuals to compete and, and, and execute orders inside of our 05 and our 06 commands. You mentioned that it's a small community and that you guys are augmentary, I guess, to some of our primary mentor groups. Um, can I ask you, what's the overall end strength of the EDO diver community? And and then also, you know, where do the majority of your officers come from? Is there any specific community or uh, is there other communities that you think would be beneficial to bring in folks from? Well, it's a good question, Matthew. They, they come from uh, really all communities. Most, most of our divers come from the surface warfare officer community, but we do have some that come from the submarine force. And we have some aviators that are divers as well. We typically recruit from our EDO lateral transfer pool, um, our EDO options, and then we recruit right from the EDQ, EDQP programs as well. Our total end strength currently is 62 divers. That's down from a peak of 70 in 2015. Our current 0304 end strength is 27 divers. And to note, that's been on a steady decline from 47, which was our peak in 2012. For, for the audience, we, we had a bad run from 2015 to 2019. Uh, that really impacted our, our junior officer end strength, uh, and it was t- it was two things. One, we weren't ha- we didn't have candidates to fill our ten billets a year. High attrition rate at dive school in 2015 to 16, our attrition was 29 percent. 2017, it was, uh, went up to 33 percent, and in 2018 and 2019, we're at 44 percent attrition. So over that five year span uh, of our 50 billets in those five years, we only made 23 divers, um, and that really hurt our our junior officer numbers. So, so since then, we took a hard look of, of, one, why we weren't filling our billets, and two, why we were having, having officers a trite out of dive school. And we made some changes. One thing we did is, is we took a round turn on our screening and selection process and really engaged our ED divers throughout the community to focus on the candidates within their regions to prepare them as, as best as possible for dive school. We also started a, a dive prep program at the Naval Postgraduate School where we have our divers that are attending school at Naval Postgraduate School, and they created a program where once or twice a week, they, they get our candidates into the pool and get them comfortable in the water with the drills that they will be required to do at dive school. Next thing we did, we, we took a close look at building those relationships with the divers from the time they say they want to become a candidate to the time they start dive school. And we monitor their progress daily, sometimes weekly, to make sure they're making the correct progress needed to be successful at dive school. And the last thing we did, uh, we worked closely with our ED detailer shop to give all of our candidates uh, four weeks minimum 
in Panama City uh, assigned to the Navy Experimental Diving Unit for those four weeks where they can focus 100% on preparing both mentally and physically for the rigors of dive school um, away from the day-to-day grind of their, or their day job. And in all, all that together, it's, it's really paid off. In 2020, uh, we had 11 students go through dive school and nine of them graduated. Uh, we only lost two. One was a casualty due to COVID and one was an injury. And, and that injury is uh, already signed up to go back to school here next year. And in 2021, so far, we're three for three on graduates, and we have six more in school right now. Well, that's good news. I'm glad to hear that there's a positive trend in, in that in that arena, because um, I know it's a critical skill that we need to maintain within the community. But uh, let me ask you this. So, you know, most of the divers that I've encountered in my career, they seem to kind of come from the maintenance side, uh, the RMCs or, or the shipyard kind of communities. But can anyone be a, an EDO diver? I'm like, I'm a canicocker. Could I be an EDO diver? And do you believe that the community would benefit from more divers from any mentor group in particular? Short answer is yes. Anyone who is medically qualified can be an EDO diver. Um, I'm obviously biased, but I think every EDO should go to dive school. Navy dive school is one of the most demanding and rewarding educational experiences that, that I've had in my 23 years in the Navy. And I think everyone could benefit from the knowledge gained at dive school. Currently, we have EDO divers in seven different primary mentor groups, with the bulk of them coming from the surf pack, simmer, IMG, and the, in the submarine communities. But uh, that doesn't mean we don't have EDO divers in, in the other mentor groups. We have a couple IW divers. Uh, we have a cannon cocker. So, so there is room to grow ED divers in those other career fields. And I think the community as a whole could benefit by having EDO divers with the depth of experience that our, the rest of our EDO mentor groups provide. Well, that's good news. I'm glad to hear that. So, hey, I want to shift gears a little bit on you, and I want to talk a little bit about your position as the supervisor of salvage for the Navy. So in that role, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship you know, to Naval Sea Systems Command? You mentioned the experimental diving units before and the expeditionary diving units, maybe some of the other Navy diving units that are out there in the fleet that we don't know about, and, and the operational fleet commanders themselves. Yes. So as the Navy supervisor of salvage and diving, I'm a direct report to ComNavC as CWOC. And I'm the ISIC for the Navy Experimental Diving Unit. At SoupSalve, we have NAVC technical authority for diving, salvage, underwater ship husbandry, and towing. And then we have programmatic authority for diving and salvage system acquisition and deep submergence biomedical research. One unique aspect that I'll share with you is that our salvage operational tasking comes directly from OpNav N3. So specifically OpNav N311. As fleet commanders have casualties within their AORs, which their normal fleet diving commands, uh, i.e. the mobile diving and salvage units in Pearl Harbor or deployed over or over in Little Creek, if, if it's beyond their scope of work, then the fleet requests our services through OpNav and OpNav tasks us. And that's our green light. So we cannot mobilize on a salvage mission until OpNav N3 tasks us to do so. We also work very closely with the fleet in that we are one third of the Navy's salvage triad. So the salvage triad is comprised of soup salve in conjunction with the Naval Expeditionary Combatant Command, which owns both Mudsu 1 and Mudsu 2. And then the third leg of the triad is the Military Sealift Command, which owns the salvage vessels and towing vessels. Three legs of that triad together provide the Navy's full salvage capability. What are some of maybe the unique authorities that you have as SoupSalve? And 
you kind of mentioned a little bit, but you know, what are some maybe the other services that you provide? Right. So our, our salvage requirements, uh, they originate in Title 10 under the Salvage Facilities Act. And our authority specifically is delegated to SoupSal from the Secretary of the Navy. And that authority is to provide salvage facilities for public and private vessels and to acquire and transfer vessels and other salvage equipment. So how do we do that? Uh, we, we have various tools in our, in our toolbox where we pull on depending on the, on the specifics of the mission. Uh, first, we have emergency ship salvage material warehouses uh, around the world, eight of them in total. So in these eight warehouses, we have equipment that's focused on supporting salvage operations, diving operations, underwater ship husbandry, and a pollution abatement that is ready for issue at a moment's notice in the event we have a casualty in those areas of responsibility. So in these warehouses, we have equipment for the eight, they're manned, and we have contract personnel really ready and waiting for the next thing to happen. And when we pull equipment from these warehouses and use it, we take it back, we do maintenance on it, we put it back in the system so it's ready for issue the next time, the next time we have a casualty. So we have warehouses, the manned warehouses are in uh, Cheetah Mannix, uh, Little Creek or, or Norfolk, Virginia, Port Winnemi, California, Anchorage, Alaska, Pearl Harbor. And then our unmanned warehouses are in Japan, uh, Bahrain, Rhoda, and Singapore. In addition to the warehouses that we have and the equipment, we have three uh, worldwide salvage operations contracts. And these contracts separate the globe into three distinct local areas. And, and one is Western Pacific, and that's our, our contractor is Smith Singapore. The Eastern Pacific is covered by Smith Americas, and the Atlantic is covered by Donjon. So in the event we have operations in these three theaters, those are our salvage contractors that we go to to get the work done. Uh, from a deep ocean search and recovery perspective, we have a contract with Phoenix International where we own all of the Navy's search and salvage AUVs and ROVs, and Phoenix International operates and maintains them for us. Um, and they are located right outside of D.C. here in Largo, Maryland. Also with Phoenix, we have a diving services contract primarily focused on underwater ship husbandry and underwater welding. Just another tool we have in our, in our toolbox to support the maintenance diving operations at our shipyards and our RMCs. And then lastly, uh, the hull cleaning contract for all of us that have served on, on ships and submarines. Uh, one time or another, we've had the hull clean. The, the contract that is, is used to execute all those hull cleanings is, is operated out of, our, out of our shop in OOC as well. So overall, we just have a tremendous amount of flexibility of people and equipment and contract support to really respond rapidly to any event anywhere in the world. That's good to know. I mean, that's a lot of information there and a lot of tools that you guys bring to the community. So I appreciate the primer and, and a good uh, background information, I think, for every EDO to have an understanding of. Well, Captain, I want to so bring up a little bit more of the part of this conversation that I've been looking forward to. And I, and I say looking forward to mainly just because I think of interest. But, you know, we've had some um, what I will call unfortunate string of incidents in the Navy that's required major repair work. And those include, you know, instances like the, the Bonhomme Richard, uh, the Fitzgerald and the McCain collisions. And so I, I would be very interested to hear what you have on in terms of what lessons we can learn from those events as a diver community and the, and the salvage community, then as the EDO community at large. Yes, Matthew. So what I tell you that in all three incidents, we tracked through a, a similar repair continuum. In all three cases, it started with an incident where ship's force responded and executed initial damage control efforts. And that followed into a float salvage effort, efforts, damage assessments, towing and, and or heavy lift in the case of uh, Fitzgerald McCain, and then ending in ship repair, or in the case of Bonham Richard, ship scrapping. 
and also tell you in all three of these incidents, we learned or, or relearned similar lessons. And I'll highlight a few of them. First, command and control. Command and control is critical to the entire evolution. From a standpoint of we need to know who is in charge and what the commander's intent is, it must be clear. In the early stages of the, of the repair continuum, it's our job as engineering duty officers to provide that salvage capability or that damage assessment to inform the fleet commanders, which will drive their repair decisions, what they want to do with that vessel to get it back in the fight. Um, it's then our, our job as EDOs to execute those repairs and get the ship back to the fleet as soon as possible. All EDOs, regardless of mentor group, have a critical role in that repair continuum, and we need to be ready ready to execute. Second, uh, streamlined communications, specifically communications hand-in-hand hand with command and control. Every incident that I've been involved with, and incidents uh, like Bonham or Shard, as a recent example, there's a tremendous thirst for information. All, all with positive intent, but we need to be careful not to overwhelm the folks in the deck plates that are closest to the fire. I'll give you an example. During the first week, two weeks of, of the Bonham Richard incident, where our team was, was on the deck plates integrated with ship's force and, and the federal fire team really working to, to put the fire out and stabilize the ship, um, our, our folks were really overwhelmed with requests for information. And, and for example, in, in those first two weeks, we answered to six different emergency operations centers. Uh, around the U.S., all with good intent and, and all with different stakeholders and different priorities and different timelines, different um, requests for information. But when you have that many stakeholders and that many operation centers all funneling down to the deck plate team, um, it, it overwhelms them very quickly. And then it prevents them from doing, doing the job that they need to do. Third, uh, initial vessel conditions. We need to know when it's a salvage effort or, or even ship repair effort, we need to know what the initial vessel condition was. And in, in many cases, and including the three that, that we're talking about here, we did not have a good idea what the condition was from a tank loading perspective. And our engineers need to know that information so they can accurately and, and quickly assess the damaged condition of the ship and then figure out how to how to restabilize the ship. You know, good lessons learned that we've we've shared with the fleet is having them transmit their daily fuel and water reports off the ship to a single repository somewhere. So when something like this happens, we're not having to rely on the ship and ship's force who is already overwhelmed with what's going on, trying to get to the, the status of the daily and fuel water and report. And then last, you know, high level lesson learned I'd talk about would, would be logistics and the logistics required to mobilize for a casualty response. Anytime something like this happens, Minus bottom or shard, typically it happens in a remote area of the world, and we need to deploy personnel and equipment to the site as fast as possible. That that's challenging in peacetime. If we start talking about you know battle damage repair and doing repairs in contested environments, it gets harder and harder to transport people and, and equipment to the site. And most times, we'll probably have to rely on military aircraft to do that transport. And we'll be competing with the other services who will also have airlift requirements. So it's just something that, that we need to think about, you know, in, in time of, of conflict, how will we transport and transport quickly all the people and equipment and parts that we need to affect the repairs? No, that's good insight, Captain. I appreciate that. You know, kind of tied to that, I know that the GAO recently released a report, and we'll, we'll include that in the, in the show notes and a link to that as well. But they released a report on the Navy's capability for conducting battle damage repair. And I think some of the concerns you you just talked about that were highlighted in that report, but is there anything else concerning that was uh, highlighted there? Yeah, Matthew. First, I would tell you, 
uh, I recommend that every EDO read that GAO report. And I know you said that you're going to put it in the notes, but if, if they don't see the notes, uh, it's titled Timely Actions Needed to Improve Planning and Develop Capabilities for Damage Repair from June to 2021. The report, it, it focused in two general areas. Uh, first, report documents the challenges of using existing ship repair capability during a great power conflict. Uh, the report discusses the, the ship repair continuum to include external threats and time constraints and proximity of resources associated with the battle damage repair scenario. So if you think about it, we have not needed to triage and repair multiple battle damage ships in quick succession since World War II. And the repairs to ships damaged in battle today would largely draw on our regular maintenance personnel resources that we already have fully burdened in our shipyards and our, at our RMCs. Uh, second, the report highlights and evaluates 15 different efforts which with the Navy is, is developing to increase our battle damage repair capability. And NAVC, we play a critical role in, in many of these different efforts. In the end, the GAO report really focuses on three recommendations for the Navy. Number one, they, they, they recommend that we designate an organization with the appropriate authority to lead and oversee development of the Navy's battle damage repair capability. I'll tell you, a lot of commands are focused on their parts of the battle damage repair problem, uh, many of which are in, in NAVC, and we focus on a lot on it a lot in, in SoupSouth. But there's no single entity coordinating and aligning the overall effort for the Navy. Um, the second recommendation from GAO was to designate an organization to develop and issue guidance that clarifies command and control responsibilities for executing the battle damage repair problem. To date, we don't we do not have any formal Navy doctrine that covers the full scope of the battle damage repair continuum. There, there's some white papers and concept operations. And we have other documents uh, such as the Navy salvage operations instruction that covers pieces of the repair continuum, but nothing that covers um, from impact to repair in a battle damage repair scenario. And then the last recommendation was uh, to establish guidance that requires the Navy to periodically assess and update ship vulnerability models uh, that ensure these models are accurately reflect the ship's mission critical systems and for informed battle damage repair scenarios. So these models are, are largely created at the Warfare Center up in Carter Rock. And during the ship acquisition process, there's a lot of energy that's put into developing the models and validating the models. But after the first ship or two in the class hits the fleet, they kind of fall off from there and they go into a file and, and never get touched again, never get updated again. So uh, it, it's important that those we, we put a lot of effort into creating those models and validating them. And, and we may need those in, in a battle damage repair scenario. So they need to be ready to go. Yes, sir. It's an important call to action. And uh, I'm glad that we've got some smart folks within the, the EDO community engaged in, in that effort. Hopefully we can resolve those things as we, as we continue to look forward to, to great power competition. So my understanding is that, you know, there was a, a recent battle damage exercise that we were able to, to hold on uh, BHR in the wake of the fire. Can you talk about that a little bit? Maybe what some of the lessons learned uh, were from that event? Yeah. So, so Bonham Shard, um, obviously a very unfortunate incident uh, resulting in the loss of, of a ship to the Navy. We put a lot of thought in, hey, how, how could we use Bottom of Shard, we'll call it a battle damage ship. It wasn't battle damage, but a damaged ship. How could we use that to the maximum extent to, to gain as much information from it as we could um, before it went into the scrapyard? During the, the towing operation where we towed Bottom of Shard from San Diego over to Brownsville, Texas, we took advantage of that opportunity to execute at sea an at-sea battle damage assessment repair event 
uh, to really exercise the spectrum of response to battle damage from an afloat salvage perspective and from a damage assessment and expeditionary repair perspective. We coordinated the event. Uh, the training took place uh, while the ship was about 300 nautical miles southeast of Brownsville, Texas. And uh, we started the, the training event on 26 May and finished on 4 June. Uh, so overall, we had 40 individuals participate in the training event from several commands, including NAVC, Swarmic, Marmic, Cermic, both Mudsu 1 and Mudsu 2. We had a rep from uh, Fleet Forces Command, from PAC Fleet, from the Expeditionary Combatant Command, and then reps from uh, both EOD Group 1 and EOD Group 2. And uh, we started off with two uh, a two-day transit from Brownsville, Texas, out to the ship uh, as it was steaming towards uh, the Texas coastline. And during those two days, we really focused the training on ship layout, vessel familiarization, and, and known damage estimates. Uh, a lot of the folks that, that were on the, on the training team, one, had never been on Bonham Shard, didn't know what what damage they were going to see or what to expect. And, and some of our junior sailors at our salvage units out at, out at Mudsu 1 and Mudsu 2 um, had never been on a ship before, period. So it was, a, it was a, big, a big focus on preparing them for what they were going to see once they boarded Bonham or Shard. Uh, once we, we got to the site, we spent three days uh, conducting the exercise at sea aboard Bonham or Shard. Uh, the first step was establishing communications with our shore EOCs, conducting salvage equipment familiarization and training with the teams on board, uh, executing medical uh, extraction operations, and then really culminated the three days, three-day event with uh, operational training consisting of capstone drills focused on locating damage, reporting the damage, patching, pumping, welding, cutting, um, everything and anything needed to uh, leading to ship stabilization. And we were able to, since it's a, it's, it's a damaged ship in a, in a no-fail environment, uh, recreate those scenarios over and over again and really test the team's ability to execute those salvage operations. And then once we pulled into port, we really shifted from a salvage, a float salvage response to a damage assessment and expeditionary repair response in that we had teams from from our, our regional maintenance centers, uh, waiting on the pier with their damage assessment experts. And then we turned the ship over, our salvage teams at sea turned uh, the information collected and, and over to those damage assessment teams. And then they spent two to three days doing their own damage assessments, really fine-tuning their techniques and, and tactics of how they would execute a damage assessment on a, on a ship that's badly damaged at sea. Um, and then developing their work procedures. And that's kind of where we stopped the event. But overall, it was it was a great event. We learned a lot of lessons. A few of them communications. Uh, so the communications off of Bonham Richard was 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 challenging. Uh, the exercise uh, we assumed that shipboard communications was down, which it actually was in this case. So our salvage teams could only use the expeditionary communications that they brought to the scene. So satellite phone, portable HF radio, satcom systems. And so they were able to establish communication links with our shore-based operations centers, but with various, varying degrees of success and, and not ideal in any case. So we have some work to do with how do we establish and maintain clear and communications from a damaged ship at sea. Uh, second, the damage assessment, the teams that, that were there, we need to make sure that the damage assessment teams are manned by, by folks who are most familiar with the baseline of the ship. And so when, so when they get to the ship, they can board the ship and understand what what the condition of that ship or that class was before damage and what it what it looks like now and what they need to do to repair or at least get it back to some baseline that uh, is sufficient to meet the needs of the combatant commander. 
technical authority. Uh, we need to be prepared to empower deploying personnel to make technical decisions in a post-phase zero environment. The, the ability of, of operational salvage and repair forces to communicate freely and, and clearly with technical warrant holders and, and their expert staffs back at NAVC, it may be constrained in the event of a conflict. Uh, therefore, the, the technical risk of deviating from permanent repair procedures you know, may outweigh the operational necessity to restore critical capability of the warfighter. And the folks we send forward to execute the, that mission, they need to be empowered to make those decisions as well. From a contracting perspective, it, we, we just need to be able to contract uh, rapidly to make sure that we can execute the work as fast as possible. And in some cases, you know, we may lack the preparation and justification normally required uh, with, with contract actions. And then the last piece I'll leave you with, a lesson learned, is we need to conduct more training in realistic environments beyond the tabletop. Mobilizing equipment and personnel and traversing a damaged warship and operating salvage equipment and surveying and accurately reporting conditions found, and then planning and executing repairs. We can talk about those in table dock exercises all day, but until you're physically on a damaged warship, you know, getting the job done, we just we just don't train to that level. And we need to capitalize on planned events such as SYNCX events, RIMPAC, um, as, a, as a near-term example, to really execute our BDA, BDR events and involve every part of our EDO community when we do it. I'm glad we were able to take advantage of a, you know, of a bad situation to learn some important lessons. And, you know, I'll just foot stomp, you know, the, the, the technical authority piece that you were talking about and understanding what the right levels of delegation of authority are there, because that's a problem we face out here in the Pacific Fleet AOR a lot, just based simply on our remoteness, the, the, the time distance uh, issues that we have reaching back to NAVC for support. So um, I'm glad we were able to take advantage of this situation. Um, but let me ask you why, and I think we've kind of answered this a little bit, and maybe it's a little bit of leading the witness because we've talked a lot about great power competition here, but why is it so important for us as EDOs to focus on this, uh, on these battle damage assessment and repair capabilities? And, and again, particularly in the context of great power competition. Well, I'll, I'll point right back to our, our first NAVC mission priority, which is to, to develop or to deliver combat power, uh, which is required for our Navy to fight and win whenever and wherever. Um, and in time of battle during great power competition, you know, we as engineering duty officers, we're the engineering and repair backbone supporting the combatant commanders. You know, we don't we don't know what form the battle damage will take, but it will likely affect our ships both below the waterline and above the waterline and will require expert skill sets of all our EDOs, whether they spend their days focused on HME systems or combat systems or information systems. We just need to be ready to respond with a great sense of urgency when the time comes. So what can we as EDOs then be doing to prepare for that and, and to sharpen those skills, and specifically those of us who may not be directly supporting fleet maintenance and shipyard work? Well, Matthew, over the years, you know, I've been involved in several emergent ship repair operations, and in many cases, we relied just as heavily on the acquisition side and the technical side of the EDO community as we did on the repair side. Um, I'll give you an example. When uh, USS San Antonio LPD-17 was on her maiden deployment to the 5th Fleet AOR, uh, the ship suffered a severe casualty to the main engine blue wall system. The Norfolk Naval Shipyard, they provided the ship repair personnel to essentially rebuild that blue wall system pierside in Bahrain, but we relied on the program office, PMS 317 and Soup Ship Gulf Coast and Huntington Ingalls Industries to provide all the material and equipment needed to execute the repairs. Uh, since LPDs were still in, in new construction, it was much faster to pull those resources 
from the new construction shipyards and acquisition pipeline than it was to rely on the standard repair parts process. Um, A couple specific items, I think, uh, is a I think all EDOs should be qualified in dry docking operations. You know, dry docking ships and submarines is often a key element to executing repairs. And you don't need to be focused on ship maintenance to know how to dry dock ships and submarines. Most EDOs serve in locations near regional maintenance centers or near shipyards where we dry dock ships and submarines. And there's nothing that I know of that, that stops folks from qualifying as a dry docking observer, regardless of their mentor group affiliation. Another one, and I'm biased here, you know, and I said before, I'd love to see every EDO go to dive school. Now, I know that's that's not possible, and, and dive school is not for everybody, and we only have dives or 10 billets a year, but it is a needed skill set during BDR operations. And like I said earlier, our diving and salvage community is strongest when we have EDOs with expertise in all technical areas of our engineering community. When we talk about battle damage repair, I think a lot of folks have in their mind's eye this um, this idea of, you know, welding steel, patching holes in the ships, but that's not, it's not all that battle damage repair and assessment are. So can you tell us like maybe what are some other things that we need to have ready and need to have sharpen our EDO toolkit? And I'm thinking things, and you kind of mentioned some of this stuff, but contracting, you know, combat system, C4I restoration, um, the command and control problem that you mentioned earlier, you know, things like that. It, uh, I, I, th- I think you're right in that a lot of times people think that battle damage repair equals diving and salvage. Diving and salvage does play a large part in any battle damage repair operation in that the front matter, the afloat salvage piece of that is run and executed by diving and salvage officers. officers. But quickly we get into damage assessments and we get into repairs and and that is an all EDO effort. So a few things, one, the, the people, we need to know who our experts are, where they are. We need to make sure they are trained and ready to respond in the event of a conflict whether they're salvage personnel or, or damage assessment teams or contracting officers, military, civilian, they all need to be ready and they need to understand what may be asked of them. Repair parts. Our repair teams, they are not as effective if they don't have the equipment required to repair or replace the damaged systems on board ships and submarines. Uh, whether the systems are HM&E, combat systems, C4I systems, we need to have plans in place to move parts to the scene or have them pre-staged. Similar to our emergency ship salvage material warehouses, where we have equipment already pre-staged to, to support salvage operations or diving operations really anywhere in the world, maybe we need to look at staging equipment, staging repair parts in locations where where we think it may be needed. And I've, I've had similar discussions with some of our Aegis counterparts where they are looking into how we execute our emergency ship salvage material warehouses and maybe looking at something, a similar model for maintaining Aegis type of warehouses to support the fleet when they need it, not have to pull it from a new construction yard back in in the continental US. Uh, The last piece, piece I've touched on this is transportation. We need to have plans in place to move people and parts in theater to support the operations. In our salvage world, we find that mobilizing personnel and equipment to remote sites on no notice is our second most challenging aspect of any salvage operation we do. And I say second because the first most challenging aspect is figuring out who's going to pay the bill. Everybody wants people to move and equipment to move, but uh, when you ask who's paying the bill, the conversation goes quiet pretty quick. I appreciate that insight, Captain. I really have appreciated you know this whole discussion here that we've had. I think this is an important skill set that we as an EDO community and as the Navy at large really need to focus in on. So 
go maybe a little bit lighter here. So sea story time, right? Uh, you guys, as the divers, I, I think you get to experience some kind of unique, what I'd call deck plate leadership opportunities. So do you have any good stories where you or other officers that you've worked with were able to flex those EDO leadership skills? So Matthew, I, I could tell diver sea stories all day, but I know we're on a on a time limited limited basis here. So I'll, I'll share one. I think it's relevant to dis- today's discussion. So I'll take you back to March twentieth, two thousand nine, and I was serving in Bahrain as the Fifth Fleet Salvage Officer, which is dual hatted as the uh, Marmec Det Bahrain. It was Marmec Det Bahrain at the time, um, AOIC. So I, I can remember like it was yesterday. I received a phone call just before midnight from the Fifth Fleet Battle Watch reporting a collision in the Strait of Hormuz between the USS New Orleans LPD-18 and USS Hartford SSN-768. Uh, the report was both vessels were, were badly damaged and headed back to Bahrain. So for the sake of time, I'll only focus on the New Orleans side uh, of this sea story. And uh, the next morning, uh, both, both vessels arrived pier side and across the pier, and we went to work on New Orleans really right away. Uh, so we deployed divers uh, immediately uh, when they got back to port uh, to do an underwater assessment to try and figure out how much damage the ship sustained. We found the ship sustained a 15 feet by 15 foot rupture in the shell plate near frame 70 on the starboard beam, which really took out uh, a fuel tank and a ballast water tank. We found that there's multiple holes near the ship's keel and as far back as the running gear that penetrate into other tanks you know, along the ship's length. The, the fleet commander, the fifth fleet commander's, uh, his direction was to repair New Orleans in theater. He did not want to lose New Orleans to repairs back in, in the in the continental U.S. Uh, he needed the ship in theater to execute the mission. So his direction was repair it in theater. And so we had to figure out how to do that. I could tell you we did not have a dry dock in the region large enough to to dock New Orleans for four weeks. Uh, there were dry docks there, but, but nothing was open. So we had to figure out a plan on how to execute this repair operation as fast as possible. And the plan we came up with was really to uh, develop a hybrid repair plan where we would fill those four weeks in weight, cutting out all the damaged shell plating, all the, the structure below the waterline, so when we got it into the shipyard or into the dry dock, we could go immediately into restoration. It, uh, there's some challenges with that. You know, first of all, the, f- the fuel tank that was damaged, the, it really didn't have a bottom left. And, and there were 20,000 gallons of fuel left in that tank, all pressed up to the top. But obviously, the ship couldn't pump it out because there, there was no pumping uh, system left inside that tank. So we, we as divers, we had to figure out how to, through the water column, go down, go into the tank from underneath and pump out the, oil, the fuel from the water out through the water column and into a barge, which we did. And, and, uh, but we had to get that done before we could send divers down with, with cutting torches to cut, to cut away the, the damaged material. Another, another piece of this operation that was interesting is we brought a, a Marmic naval architect in from Norfolk. And he sat you know, right alongside our, our dive teams. And he used the damage assessments from the divers and the, rep- and the material that we were moving and, and, and bringing up to the pier uh, to develop detailed construction drawings that we then provided to the shipyard in advance of dry docking. And, and the shipyard was able to fabricate everything we needed to restore the ship from the shell plate to framing, to stiffeners, to bulkheads. So it was ready to go in, in, in to restore the ship once we got into dry dock. Um, on April 25th, we docked the ship at, uh, at Arab Shipbuilding Repair Yard alongside a container vessel and an offshore platform. So so for all of our, our docking observer types on the, on the call, docking 
two ships and a platform in the same graving dock. Obviously, there's some challenges there. Prior to dry docking, we really had to address, to address two primary, primary risks. First, we could not use the standard docking drawing because of the structural damage to the hull and the keel plate. There are just places that the docking drawing said we needed blocks. You couldn't put blocks because there was no steel for them to mate with. Uh, second, New Orleans was fully loaded. Ammunition, explosives, Marine Corps equipment, because we couldn't offload that prior to, und- prior to docking because of stability and structural concerns on the ship. So another thing, we don't dock ships fully loaded um, ever. So we had to come through that. And our naval architect, he was really worth his weight in gold throughout this entire process, developing the modified plan to dock the ship. And in total, we added 60 uh, keel blocks and side blocks that we needed to make sure the ship uh, was properly supported during the dry docking evolution. Um, once, the do- once the ship was in the dock, uh, we worked 24 hours a day uh, with our shipyard partners. And in just 16 days, we completed all the repairs, undocked the ship without a single DFS, and New Orleans completed the deployment without any other issue. So just being able to work with a, with a small team um, to execute those repairs and see a badly damaged warship go into the dock and come out in 16 days and continue deployment was just an awesome, awesome sight and an awesome thing to be a part of. I appreciate you sharing that, Captain. It's it's encouraging, I think, to to hear that we were successful in being able to do that and really kind of think outside the box and flex um, to to meet the situation where it was and to be able to just meet mission. So that, that's pretty cool. I appreciate that. All right. So my favorite part of every episode, Captain, do you have any good book recommendations for us? I actually have one. Now it's an audio book, so so bear with me. But uh, but I'll recommend Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. And some people look at me and say what? And uh, I recommend one. I recommend listening to it. I did not read it. I listened to it, and I recommend that because it's narrated by Matthew McConaughey, and it's pretty entertaining. But overall, I thought the book was fun. Uh, it had a good message. I've actually listened to it twice, uh, and I could listen to it again. It's just a great book to listen to. Chuckling over here, so you're the second captain. Captain Hodgson also recommended that one specifically oh. to me, and I listened to it, and it was a fantastic listen. He's a Matthew McConaughey is a is a he's just fun to listen to, if nothing else. So, so Captain Hodgson and I, we live close to each other. We ride bikes on, on the weekends, and I recommended it to him. So I'm glad he's passing the word. Well, Captain, I've appreciated this conversation. It's been a lot of fun, and and it's been very enlightening and insightful as well. So. I appreciate your time, Captain, and uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. If you have questions you would like our guests to answer, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at wardroompodcast. I want to take this time to issue a special thank you to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Andrew Rowley. Andrew will be leaving us after this episode, so I wanted to say great job, Andrew, and you'll be missed. Fair winds and following seas. But as always, we look forward to meeting again in the wardrobe.